1: Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we are continuing to record this podcast remotely for the safety of our guests and our team. So, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of White Wine Question Time. Can you believe that since our launch almost two years ago, I've asked well in excess of 150 guests... More than 300 thought provoking questions, and I'm not even going to attempt to count the number of glasses of wine that have been consumed as we worked our way to this, our centenary episode. And my guest this week takes me back to the very beginning of my broadcasting career, where I was partnered up with him as my first ever TV husband on a little known current affairs show called Straight Up. In fact, we lived in the Southampton Novotel together for 13 weeks in the summer of 1997. Well, I'd hear through the paper-thin walls of that fine establishment him strumming his guitar through the walls, mastering extremes more than words. He was born in South or West London and he and his family moved to Kent when he was 13 and he left school at 16, taking on a variety of dead-end jobs including labouring on building sites, which you'll come to realize came in very handy, as well as working in a petrol station, selling carpets, selling shoes. His TV career ended up starting out on the other side of the world in Australia. He was working on a new show that he'd secured a role on, on the back of a CV that was, I'm sure he won't mind me telling you, a complete work of fiction, all written on BBC-headed notepaper for added authenticity. It worked, and so did he. And eventually, he started his screen career back here in the UK, on the back of that, working on regional television. His first national TV show was Straight Up, a youth current affairs show, which saw him partnered up with me and two other hosts. And from there, I think it's fair to say he's never looked back. He's been the host of DIY SOS for over 21 years now, as well as hosting quiz show Who Dares Wins for the BBC. And in 2018, he took part in I'm a Celebrity alongside Harry Redknapp, Noel Edmonds, Emily Attack and John Barrowman. Now 57, he's a father of four who's been twice married and divorced and is now living in the Cotswolds. I've always loved his conversation. I hope you do too. Let's dial him up. It's Nick Knowles. A huge, massive hello all the way down in my home stomping ground of the Cotswolds to my first ever television husband, Nick Knowles.
0: Oh, bless you. How are you?
1: I'm good. So nice to see you. How is it we met? You lived in London or, or, or kind of near. I was from Cheltenham. You're now living in my hometown. I'm now living in London. I never see you. You see my friends more than I, uh, than you see me.
0: This is very true. And considering that we probably spend most of our time in the same place in Cheltenham, I mean, we we'll certainly go to 131. Yes. Because it's, uh, it's the most London place in <laughs> children. <'Cause laughs> and and i am literally there all the time. Uh, and I can't believe we haven't bumped into each other more often, especially as we should have caught up and, and had an espresso martini or something. To, well, we
1: did try, didn't we? We did try. Yeah, I a couple tried. of times. How are you? I haven't spoken to you in so long.
0: John, you know, very good. I've um uh I've had several more children, been I've probably had a couple of marriages and things since I last saw you. It's been um, You were it, in
1: marriage one when we met, it was coming. To an end. Um, I viewed marriage too from afar.
0: Um, I had so I've got four kids now. So the youngest is six years old, um, and he's going, going great guns. So that's very lovely. Like imagine the carefree people we were when we first met. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say you were always much cooler than me. You like I was I was like having a good time and, and enjoying myself and doing and having great fun with TV and stuff. But you'd already come from the pop world, so you were always a little bit cooler. You sort of hung with the cool people.
1: Well, you know, that was my first ever TV show that we did together. It was called Straight Up. It was for Meridian Television. And um, I had, until that point, been the editor of Smash Hits. And our boss, Trish Powell, remember Trish, the pocket rocket? She's the one that convinced me that I had to be in television because this print was dying and that I needed to be part of the future. And she was relentless in her salesmanship or saleswomanship of this show. And before I knew it, I was living in a Novotel in, in Southampton with you. And I thought, how did I end up here? I said no to this.
0: Yeah, well, I remember the very first day we met. We actually went, we met for uh, a, a cup of coffee in, uh, there was a, um, a place on South Bank, directly outside Westminster. Where uh, there was like a, a sort of cafe studios uh, in there, and we met in there for the first time, and we were both fairly feisty, and actually, kind of we were like sort of fencing, but at the same time really enjoyed each other's company. I, I like to think, and we're, and it, we, it became obvious that we'd have a lot of fun doing it. I mean, we did, we you know we had a, we had a lovely little crew doing that program. You say it was Meridian Broadcasting, actually it was for the network. It was a network show, but made by Meridian, who hadn't actually made a lot of. Um, network stuff up until that time. It was kind of a youth politics show. The thing was at that stage, like, you know, well, to be honest, it's the same thing today. It was impossible to get 18 to 25 year olds to, to vote or to take an interest in politics. And we had this theory um, that it was because uh, we just make uh, like really sort of stayed old fashioned programmes and which don't in, uh, engage that age group. So we made a programme that kind of looked like um, TV ads and pop videos. It was shot that way. But with all the journalism sort of laid on, I remember the old the old schoolers in the newsroom going, "Oh, it's all style over content." I was like, "Well, it's not, is it? It's just it's style and content." It's like, "Why are you so frightened of style to make it look good?"
1: You and I were the only so the other two hosts that were on the show, Alan and Alison, lived yes. locally, but you and I had to go and live in the Southampton Novotel.
0: I think it was an overtake, yes, it wasn't particularly glamorous. Uh, and um, and I
1: was in the next room to you and I could hear you playing your guitar. You were you were learning more than words by extreme or playing it a lot. I remember that so well, Nick. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Well, I've got no better, as you will have seen when my album came out recently. I got no better, but um, I've never let... let <laughs> That's uh, not true. Never let lack of ability get in the way of me having a good time. So... Um,
1: uh, Do you sorry. remember that uh, fateful night in 1997? For some reason, that night I, I hadn't been able to sleep, and I thought, "Oh, it's because we've got a show the next morning." So our show was on Sunday lunchtimes, and it was live. And on the Saturday night, I was watching the news, and it was very late, and I saw that there had been an accident in a tunnel in Paris, and that Dirty Fired um, was reported to have lost his life, and Diana was seriously injured at that point. And yep. I remember phoning you in your room and saying, "Well, they'll never will never be on air tomorrow. This is terrible."
0: Because I was watching it, I went, you rang me, and I went, are you looking at this? And you were like, yeah. I was like, can't believe it. And you said they won't have us on air tomorrow. I said, well, you never know, they might do, because Princess Diana was uh, all about sort of youth... youth um, Causes. Uh, causes. Um, so it's just possible uh, that she might. So anyway, next morning, we kind of woke up and went into the office early.
1: See, so I didn't go to bed that night. I stayed watching the one news channel we had in the Novotel. And we got into work really early and our office was a porter cabin in the car park. It was totally what? glamorous. I remember you sat there in a pair of jeans and I think cowboy boots. And I was thinking, Nick, you say something. You say, <laughs> don't be ridiculous. We can't do this. She's only done seven hours or eight hours of telly up until now. And I was terrified that they were going to put us on air. And I was I was a complete novice.
0: I was absolutely determined that we were going to go on air because I thought that we could actually present it in a way that... Um that the main, mainstream news wouldn't, and I don't know if you remember, but very early in that process, I said, uh, right, I'm going to London. I think we were on air about 11 o'clock. I'm going to London, I've got to get up to London really quickly, but I've got to stop off at Southampton at nine o'clock on a, on a Sunday morning to find a shop to buy a black suit, because I was only, yeah. only had cowboy boots and a, and, a, and a pair of jeans. So I was stopped, That's right. bought a suit,
1: you, didn't you stop at an undertaker's?
0: Yeah, and then we, then basically, because the, I couldn't get a suit anywhere, It was never open, so I, went to, I managed to get a suit. And then we drove up like a, like lunatics all the way up to to London. I, was, I can't remember who was driving me, but somebody was driving me. Ian May. Yeah, May. And they set up the OB unit outside Buckingham Palace, and I was literally running up uh, the Mall uh, with three, two minutes to one air, and them saying I was getting starting to get messages through on my uh, saying you. Uh, we're on air in two minutes so I literally ran up they stuck an earpiece in and I said what have you got (laughs) to the director of the gallery and he went nothing just start talking and I'll tell you when we've got something (laughs) meanwhile whilst I'm racing to London you're trying to pull something together back in Southampton.
1: We were told that we might be put on air and we've got to prep as if we would and I was really trying to keep my cool but I'm sort of scratching my head going Uh, Two months ago, I was editing uh, a pop magazine, and now this—this is one of the probably, arguably, the biggest story that you could ever be a part of, and it's so tragic. And I was thinking, there's no way they'll put us on there, but we've got to—we've got to be prepared. And then I think about 45 minutes before we went live, they came through and said, "ITM needs to reconfigure. You're going to take the hour. There's a chance that the prime minister will talk." I know I had to interrupt the show to cross live to Tony Blair, and I was told that they dispatched a researcher and they'd found somebody that was sleeping rough who'd met Diana. We literally had them in the studio to talk about, you know, the personal touch. anyway, long story short, they then said to me, you've got to edit together the tribute package that will go out at the end of the show. Diana, Princess of the Young was my brief. So I'd get into this edit suite with an editor and he was like, well, what do you want? I went, I've done seven edits in my life. <laughs> like, what? And he went, and what music do you want? And I said, I don't know. And it was a Sunday and the music library was shut. We couldn't get in. So what happened was, right, so I said to him, start cutting these pictures. And I started to assemble some rushes of of her doing the kind of work that spoke to young people. And I legged it out to my car. And I'd only just got back from, I'd been to Bosnia for the show and Ibiza and the music that I had in the car was either indie or pretty much hardcore rave, yeah? And I was just trying to find a track to play that that, that tribute out on, And all I had was Elton John's Greatest Hits. And I'm going through the track listings. And I thought, I'm still saying, no, 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 sad songs. No, 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 no. Candle in the Wind. She was on Norma Jean. I- I'll see what they say. So I ran it back into the edit, spoke to, to Trish and um, said, what about this? She said, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And then... We went on air and it was the most surreal hour. But that was the hour, Nick, where I went from saying, I'm just having a little um, try before you buy with telly to then going, I can't ever do anything other than this, because this is this is this is it. This is amazing.
0: At that stage. So i had been i had been in news and current affairs for a long time uh, on TV news. Um, and so I arrive outside the gates of Buckingham Palace, stick the earpiece in and say, hey, what have you got? And they went, nothing yet. Keep, start talking and we'll tell you when we've got something to roll. I was like, okay. So it came on and that's where I was talking about earlier about referring to the people around us because they came on air and everybody, what was really interesting was that already at that stage that morning, uh, young people were turning up and shouting abuse at the press cordon because they felt somehow that they were responsible for what had happened. Um, and so I started off, and I said, well, you know, here we are outside Buckingham Palace, and already this morning, uh, young people are turning up, having been out for nightclubs and clubs in in London, are coming to the scene and bringing flowers uh, to lay outside Buckingham Palace. But also, I have to tell you that uh, the press cordon here is getting some abuse from people who believe that the press are responsible. We were the first people to talk about that sense that she was sort of hounded in, and then, and then all of a sudden, they said, yeah, we've got this retrospective uh, throw to the tape. So. Um, or throw back into the studio whatever it was and then we went into that piece where you'd put together um, the stuff to candle in the wind and um,
1: as I understand it after that it just got a lot of pick up on radio and it became almost um, an anthem for Diana
0: I've always credited you with that I, you actually found it, it it was exactly right for the time and um, and it did get picked up by lots and lots of other people but it's interesting because I think because we've told that story a couple of times earlier on in maybe whenever let's not talk about how many years ago Um, It was. Um, I I think that's been picked up by somebody else who now believes it's their story.
1: Like Last year sometime, I wake up one Sunday morning and my Twitter notifications are going, bing, bing, bing. And I don't really tweet much these days. Um, I lurk, but I don't participate. And there you are taking Kay Burley to task because she claimed that they were the first network to play this song. And I just thought, well, I'm not going to get embroiled in this because this is this is distasteful. This is about who played a, a piece of music yeah. to illustrate the loss of, an, you know, basically of, of of a woman that so many loved, but fundamentally two young boys lost their mum that day. And I, I thought, I'm not going to get involved. But you went in for the dogfight with them, and you were like, no, you did not. I think you will find. <laughs> you really, you really, you were very gallant, Nick, on my behalf. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Well, and, and, oddly enough Alison Black who was uh producing that day as well was uh, who's now in yes. Australia was actually tweeting support from Australia saying well <laughs> I, was there I know what happened so yeah like, it's funny how the world goes but I think people start to convince themselves after a little while of things but you know that we were there that night that morning that day and it was an absolutely it was an extraordinary thing and 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 led on to extraordinary things and you know, and, and I always felt like a, a responsibility uh, through that. And then I was lucky enough. Later. I did,
1: massively, massively, Nick. That that day, I can remember so much about it. I can remember the smell of my car. I can remember the boots you were wearing. I remember where I was sat in the office. I remember the sheer fear and dread running through me like ice through my veins of thinking I've got to go on TV and, and do this woman and her memory justice. And I don't know if I've got it in me to do this. Well, and you yeah, know, that yeah. massive do not mess it up mantra buzzing in my ears.
0: You will remember that I, at that stage in my life, I was leaving a, leading a fairly random life whilst doing news and various other things as well. I was occasionally uh, I was occasionally partying and sleeping in a hedge on the Isle of Wight before getting back just in time to do the programme on a Sunday. Yes, you were. Yeah. So I was busy having a good time at the time. And I think because of that, because of the, the lifestyle I was leading, people thought I was kind of not really serious about what I did. And that at that morning, I felt a real responsibility to get that right and maybe put aside mm. the story that other people weren't. And I think actually we did a we did a, a really, really good job that morning, and to be fair, we were the only programme that uh, news broke for during the course of that uh, whole Sunday morning, so.
1: I remember we picked up and handed back to Trevor McDonald. We yeah. broke off to speak, to, to, to listen to Tony Blair speak. And it just, um, I remember driving back home to London that Sunday, because I would always come back on Sundays after the show and then travel back down to Tuesday. To live with you in the Novotel, um, and I just remember driving back in absolute silence, and I just I thought I can't I I, I, I don't even know if I should have been driving. Actually, I was just stunned.
0: Yeah, it was, and to be honest, over the years I've been very lucky to to go on and um, spend some time around the 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 two princes and see them sort of grow into the sort of fine young men that they become, and um, uh, and and work with them on occasions as well. And it, I've always felt that responsibility from. Uh, from that early time, from, from, from that evening and then seeing the boys afterwards. And I met them again soon afterwards through something out was when William was about 15. So Harry would have been what about 11, 12, I guess. Um, and then at various stages through and meeting them and then, then coming and working and doing stuff and me doing, doing stuff with them and then uh, doing Invictus with Harry and so on and so forth. So I've always felt sort of connected to that and all from that event really, I mean, felt responsibility to it, but it was extraordinary times. And, um, and you, then you did and you went, on, you went on and did all right didn't you
1: as did you sir <laughs> look at you i have to say i've got massive show envy with DIY SOS if i think of all the shows that there's two shows on air that i would have walked over hot coals for that's one of them and the other is uh, long lost family
0: ah uh, yeah lovely Lovely, and I'm just lovely.
1: I'm just drawn to those emotional narratives. The heartbeat of those shows is the people. It's not about what you do to their house. It's about what you do for their lives. It's how you elevate and lift and and assist. And that's brilliant. And well, it must feel really good to do telly that does good, Nick.
0: Yeah, it is. And the difficulty is when in making uh, telly that that's good, there is a danger of it being saccharine and of um, it being sort of too worthy. And the, the, I think the nice thing about this, because of the sort of random builders. And the joking and messing about and the sort of building site humor that goes in with it. It's a very sort of earthy, fun thing. Whilst whilst shining a light on people who sort of fall through the net in society, it's a great opportunity. We were talking about this the other day. I was because I'm doing a lot with veterans at the moment. And um we were talking about the fact that if you do a program on BBC One about PTSD, you'll get about a million, million and a half people watching. If you do a DIY SOS on a veteran street and feature a veteran with PTSD and see him with his kid and his family and tell that story through that, you get 9 million viewers. So there's a a really lovely way to gently shine a light on various different groups, uh, which is what we've tried to do over the years. But essentially, it's not actually about, I mean, people say DOS West does amazing things. The truth is, it's not done by us. There's five of us on screen, six in the office. That's all it is. All of these builds that we do, the one we just did down in Swansea uh, for the Surfability charity, which is just amazing. Was built by the people who volunteer and come and work for free, or give the materials. Mm. It's what you've got, it's almost like that Amish thing of raising a barn, where um, a community comes together and says, "This isn't fair. This mm. isn't right. We can we can mend this, or help mend this situation in this community." And I think it's been reflected through the pandemic that people have been, whilst the politicians and the news have all been like pulling each other's heads off and you know at each other's throats, and. It, given people the idea or possibly because of the vagaries of social media as well, that that's who we are as a nation. Whereas in actual fact, people have been incredibly generous. People have shielded people. They've gone shopping for people. They've looked after people in their street, village town. I think the the response of the people in the UK has been absolutely astounding and brilliant. And we see that everywhere we go. We've we've, 21 years, we've worked with 21, 22,000 builders who've given their time for free. Eighty million wow. worth of homes and respite centres and veteran streets, all with donated materials. It's we're we're a we're a very generous and caring country.
1: I think so, and I think you know you, we saw that in in abundance this year. But I think you've always shone a line on uh, shone a light on that. And I like that. I love that show. It's great. Twenty one years on, you're still you're still running around with a screwdriver. Annoying all the builders, making it happen. I applaud
0: you. I I said to someone recently, I've never let lack of knowledge get in the way of being having an opinion.
1: (laughs) Never. (laughs) My first question. I want you to imagine that your life is a book. Tell me which three chapters I should read that would make for the most compelling narrative.
0: Brian, you really have thought about these questions, haven't you? Um... (laughs) Thank
1: you very much.
0: (laughs) Uh, well, early life, definitely. You know, I grew up on a council estate in West London. And without wanting to go down that hole, my father was a goat herder routine. You know, I, know, I came from nothing <laughs> except but, but I did. I grew up on a council estate. Your of dad
1: a, was not a goat herder, was he? Tell me what uh, your dad did no, for a living.
0: My dad actually was a pilot in the RAF flying hurricanes at the end of the World War uh, in Palestine and Egypt. So I sort of had elderly parents. I'm quite old now anyway. But I also had sort of elderly parents when they had me. So that when everyone talks about, you know, the grandparent generation being sort of in the war, it was, it's actually my parents who were in there. But I grew up, well, grew up in this council estate and um, my dad was working like three jobs. He used to work for the civil service. as so He used to make maps and things for the civil service. And then he would uh, do engineering drawing. He was a cartographer, so he could do engineering drawing, which he'd do on the living room table. And then at Christmas, or he'd, he'd go out and he'd work at the post office through the night to, to sort in at the post office to earn extra money to buy us all Christmas presents. So...
1: Yeah a grafter this,
0: well yeah but it also ran him into three early heart attacks you know he mean like didn't well that and it's that is a love of butter and and egg yolks rather than the whole egg but anyway there's um so yeah it, so there was that grafting thing growing up with a on a with a uh brothers and sisters i've got three sisters and a brother uh, and running around the estate and sort of jumping in the canal i don't quite sure how i didn't die early on but um So I think those are formative years because the the one thing I always say I was very lucky to have was a dad who literally, I was always asking questions and he would never tell me to stop asking questions. He'd just make the effort to answer me in almost anything that I came up with. And he kind of gave me that sense that I could do anything. So no matter what the background I came from, um, I was, I was capable of doing anything. And the other lesson was, and you have to work at it. Because the, some people are told by their parents they're lovely and they're brilliant at everything, but they forget to mention that you need to work really hard at it to do it. Yeah. And uh, and, and you mentioned when we first worked together, I literally was living at Ian May's house at that stage. So just um, to explain,
1: Ian May is one of your best friends. He's a brilliant cameraman, and most of his work now is on Top Gear, isn't it?
0: He's shot pretty much all, everything on Top Gear since it started. he started. Well, he was, he was an exceptional cameraman, an exceptional editor, and we used to make lots of programs together, but we enjoyed ourselves a lot too. We properly, yeah. we properly enjoyed ourselves. We always used to say, like, "We had a few sayings: book early to avoid disappointment." And the two of us were never knowingly undersold.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you're right; he's one of the finest cameraman and DOPs out there, director of photography. And actually, to see him stretch his, his muscle artistically and creatively has been a joy. And you can always see when you watch something on Top Gear, if you think, oh, my God, what lunatic shot that. You just know it's Ian.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly right. And <laughs> he then went on and did the Grand Tour as well, and as well as Top Gear and all kinds of others. He shot Formula One. He shoots adverts for car manufacturers. He's done all kinds of things. And I think the two lessons are really important. I was lucky to have a father that would actually encourage me. And so I had that sort of stable family life to, to, from which to launch. Um, and then I got out there and started doing things from the age of 16, which I think always surprises people. People assume that I went through and got degrees and all, uh, you know. But actually, I went out and started working at 16 and then worked my way into various different things, tried being in bands, tried being an actor, tried all kinds of other things. Eventually ended up going, uh, working as a runner at the BBC and then went to a, The truth was I lied my way into a job in Australia on the basis that I got a job as a temporary accounts clerk at the BBC. And one of my jobs was to get... All the heads of department to sign papers. I'd go in with like a pile of papers for them to sign, like the head of BBC Two and the head of BBC One. And so I used to take them, and I just put a blank in there, and they'd sign them. And so I'd write my references on the blank piece of paper, on a piece of, <laughs> of paper. And then I went to Australia before, before the internet. So I went to Australia where the time difference. And I just turned up at all these TV stations with the best CV you've ever seen in your life, uh, um, and got myself a job in TV out there. And that's kind of how it kicked off. And so it was a little bit sort of determination, a lot of hard work and and enough puts power to go, um, I'll, I'll have a go and see if I can get away with this. And so I think that early life, that, that early setting in me, that sort of determination uh, to work succeed. And also I remember I got a very clear vision of sitting. My mom, in the old council houses, they used to have like a red step, which yes. mum used to polish. Polish to and scrub.
1: Polish. Yeah, judged by yeah. your steps, weren't you? Keep your steps nice.
0: There was a. She used to put. I remember. It was called Admiral Red. It was like a polish you used to put on your Mm. step to keep your step red. Yeah. I remember sitting on that watching my dad. And Mr. Wilson next door only had only had one child. Had the long handled shears and and the posh mower and all of the various. And my dad was going to was pushing a mower around that was probably back from 1942, and was basically cutting the edge of the lawn with with a pair of uh, kitchen scissors. And I remember thinking. I don't want anybody in my family to be to have the crap stuff. I, I I've got to find a way to do better so that I could, so that my family can have the decent stuff like everybody else. And that, I think that's been the driver. And then once you get into it weirdly there's a constant terror that it's all about to disappear so you work harder than hard, you know even when you're doing well
1: it's a common theme certainly on this podcast the the fear of, of of the rug being pulled from under your feet and and it's happened to me a few times and you learn that actually the fear is worse than the reality and the rebuild I think when you talk you've identified one of those compelling chapters in your life as that that moment of starting out and the chase and sometimes that's far more exciting than the success that you then enjoy because Actually, that, for me, was often wrapped in fear that who's going to make this end? Is, am I going to be thrown out? Is somebody going to tap me on the shoulder and say, come on, you, you shouldn't be in here.
0: You know, really still, you know, like you turn up now. I mean, then the weird thing is that, so I look back over the time that I've, I've done, you know, spent time with uh, prime ministers and presidents and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Ten and princes. And I remember sitting in the back garden doing an interview with uh, Prince Harry and uh, Buckingham Palace. And I, we, I, we were sitting there waiting for a shot to happen. I sat next to him and... and and I kind of drifted off a bit. And he suddenly said, where did you go off to? And I was like, oh, um I was thinking about when I was about seven years old. And my dad brought me up here with some paper and some crayons. And I sort of peered through the railings at the front and drew a picture of the front of Buckingham Palace with the soldiers marching up and down. And I think my dad would absolutely freak out thinking that I was sitting in the back garden with you. And he went, yeah, he said, I can get that. He said, imagine how weird it is to beat me. <laughs> <It was something. laughs> we both really roared with laughter. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's just it, look, living a life less ordinary and that sort of ambition. So I think that would probably be one, probably going through first divorce and trying to find my way through that. Um, one of the things I think that makes you a decent human being over the years is, is relationship breakups feel awful and they are terrible when you hate the fact that people have been hurt along the way. But one of the things about relationship breakups, it knocks the corners off you. And I think I was a nicer person after I'd been through some damage rather than the 100 mile an hour full of myself, arrogant person I was in my 20s. Um, And I think various uh, things that can be seen as detrimental and and harmful at the time end up shaping you and and, and knocking those jagged corners off and making you a nicer person as you go along.
1: That's what I first met you, actually, when you were going through all of that. Probably the, the best way to describe you through my eyes was you were like a pinball in a pinball machine. You were all over the place, jumping from one thing to the next, to the next, and you lacked peace. And I knew that you felt bad because you had inflicted hurt on somebody that you never wanted to hurt. And I could see that you, you were wrestling and also enjoying this this network success, the first time you had been on network television and that kind of bittersweet, sweet and sour experience of what was going on at home and what was going on at work.
0: Well, I think it was an interesting thing actually, because on the one hand, you you're like, you know, you were dealing with that sort of uh, that rise in success, which is positive. Massive relief because finally I was earning enough money to be able to afford. To look after everybody, <laughs> so just because up until that point I'd actually lived on. Uh, I basically slept on Ian's sofa. He let me have a room in there, but but I, but I le- slept on his sofa and then lived with Ian for about two years, uh, where he fed me and I didn't pay any rent because literally every penny I earned was trying to trying to manage the situation, you know, with my young kids. So that was a that was a tough time, and the relief of actually doing well enough to be able to afford to look after everybody was such a such a huge thing, and then actually trying to find my uh, my place in the world and. Um, uh, and, and that eternal thing, which has been my whole career, and you, I think you'll recognise this, is the one thing I was desperate for people not to think was that I was acting like a TV presenter. It's my worst nightmare to become one of those people. But, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I always so, assume... No,
1: explain, that- what do you mean? What is acting like a TV presenter? Because now I'm well, worried. I do. do I act like that?
0: People people say, well, quite say, quite, I know, a bit full yourself before they've even spoken to you because... TV is being a TV presenter. There are a lot of you know, there's a lot of arrogance and things around it. And weird, there's a weird thing with being a TV presenter, you have to be self confident enough to be able to stand up in front of seven million people and think it's okay that they'll listen to you without being so full of yourself that you become arrogant and a pain in the ass. Um, I think one of the uh, one of the things that frightened me the most was that anybody that I would ever act like someone who believed their own press releases, and we all know people. Uh, who who do that kind of thing. So I took the view, I've always taken the view that people, when I meet them, I start, the starting point for me is that they think I'm an arse from the start of meeting them. And I can win them round from that point. I've never met people and thought that anyone's going to be impressed by me being a TV presenter. It's quite the opposite. I've always seen it as a absolute negative when I meet people that I have to win people over back from.
1: Does it feel like that to you sometimes?
0: Always. I mean, it's always been the case because I am terrified of in any way acting like that kind of self-aggrandizing egypt that you and i have met too many times in the business so it's finding that middle ground like i say about being confident enough to do the job and i've always been confident to do the job whilst keeping a really weather eye i mean i've been very lucky i work with a bunch of builders who literally would let not let me get away with anything um, and then i've got family who are really really great and down to earth and it will tell me very clearly when i'm getting carried away with myself so that's, that's been very handy over the years.
1: So we'd go to your childhood. We'd go to the beginning of your career at a time when you were coming out of your first marriage feeling very conflicted about what you, who you were and what you'd done. And then what's yep. the third chapter of your life that you think would be compelling to read about?
0: Now, probably the, the road to the Damascus moment about two and a half years ago where uh, having gone through um, my second divorce, I then decided that I would... Um, there's a really weird thing that happened. I, I, I put my watch down. I was living in a Georgian house in uh, Windsor, or near Windsor. Um, and you know, you do all right in life. You get, this, you get the big house and you sat there and all the rest of it. The, my um, ex and my little boy were living away in Cheltenham. I was uh, still in Windsor at that stage. And I went to find my watch and I couldn't find it. And I went into two rooms I hadn't been into for a year. And I was like, what the hell am I doing in this house? And I sat down and I looked at everything. I don't use that cupboard. I don't use that wardrobe. I don't use that antique that I bought. I don't. I don't do this. I don't use that. I'm. I haven't looked at any of my tapes of the the, the programs that I've done over the years. In and and I don't think I, if if life continues to be interesting and busy, I shouldn't have time to go back and look at my old tapes. So, so basically, I gave away all my furniture to friends who had nice houses. Uh, got rid of the house. Skipped eighty percent of my possessions. And moved out to the countryside uh, near Cheltenham into a little village in the middle of nowhere. And I now live in a tiny little cottage, which, you, I mean, what you can see behind me is half the cottage. <laughs> really? So,
1: I mean, actually, I, I, was, I was intrigued by this, Nick. I really was, because it's like you've purged your past. And I wonder what that feels like to shed all of that stuff.
0: It's amazing. It's unbelievably free. Well, for a start, I'm not really interested in what's happened before because tomorrow is what's really interesting. Today and tomorrow is really what's really interesting. Um, Stuff, you know, the the further you get in life, the more you realise that stuff is meaningless. People are really important. Stuff is meaningless. Um, And actually, what do you need to be comfortable and happy? I've I've got a lovely kitchen. I love cooking. I've got a lovely kitchen, a dining room area. I've got like a little wood burner in the background. I've got a garden. I've planted up full of veg and flowers so my little boy and I can grow peas and sweet corn and various other things like that, which is great. Um, and I look out over fields that are full of horses on all sides. So, um, and it's like worth a tenth of probably what it was, uh, what I was in in London. And I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. And feel, oh,
1: yes. that,
0: and, and, and interestingly, journalists, you'll know this, every now and again, when you do these sort of Q&A things, journalists would say, Where's home for you? Where do you feel at home? And I could never answer the question i never had home the only sense of home i could ever have was when i flew back from somewhere and i saw the thames or i walked over the thames in london and i walked over the bridge if i saw the thames i kind of felt like i was home but there was nowhere that i was i ever considered home until i came here and then suddenly i'm i'm home this is where i'm you know this is where i'll be this is where i'll stay
1: funny isn't it because it's it's not like you've got any real affiliation with that areas there's no kind of family connection beyond the fact that Eddie lives there with his mum, but you yep. feel peaceful there. You feel a sense of belonging.
0: Yeah, for a city boy who spent his whole life in, in, in London and then living in Sydney or Rome or all the other places that I've lived in Toronto and Canada and um, and all the travelling and stuff. Um, and the other thing is I'm kind of here on my own and I'm surrounded by fields. It's not like a pub that I go to regularly around here. It's, you know, know. it's a for a sort of gregarious person who spent his whole life dealing with people... I mean, it's a bit like Zsa Zsa Gabor, you know, I'm suddenly become this
1: sort of... I want to be alone.
0: Yeah, and the worry is when I start growing my fingernails and storing my urine in the corner, that's when I need to start working <laughs> really <like, laughs> so well. That,
1: that, that's the next chapter of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I'm kind of intrigued by your purging of your past. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed in so many ways because you do realise it's stuff you don't need, don't you? It's badges of honour and actually... How many of those do you need?
0: Most rubbish, really. I, was, I, I had a thought. What do, I, what do I remember from my childhood? What are the key like, little flashes of memory that I have from my childhood? One was actually walking through uh, some woods in a place called Osley Park, which is my favourite park in London. It's up near Sky TV on the, on, um, uh, the Great West Road. Um, and walking into a clearing in the forest there with my dad when I was about five or six years old and seeing a foxglove and thinking it was the most beautiful flower in the world. And my dad telling me about it. And that's a really clear, vivid memory. So I found fox foxgloves around the garden sort of with my, my dad. Ah. And, 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 and later on, when I was about nine, we were on a holiday uh, to Cornwall walking down uh, the farmer's sort of um, a little allotment garden he had in the back, back of his garden. And him picking pea pods off and giving them to my dad. And my dad splitting the pea pod and me and him eating raw peas straight out of the pod. We planted them. Eddie watered them. We grew them. We picked them. We sat on the sofa and tried to put them into a pot for dinner, but they never made it because he ate them all. And, that's- <laughs> um, and there's and there's the moment from my childhood. Never mind all the other things that we did. It wasn't about holidays. It wasn't about fun fairs. It wasn't about money I spent uh, or presents I got at Christmas. The actual key memories for me were those little things: walking in the countryside, seeing a beautiful flower, eating peas from a pod. Uh, being on the beach, building a dam down in Cornwall.
1: Simple pleasures.
0: So I thought, well, that's the things I need to concentrate on uh, for Eddie and try and make things better for Eddie um, and try and be a better parent than I was probably first time around Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20 how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per
0: month. Slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound.
1: Um, I wanted to know what do you think you could have done better, and you've almost just answered that.
0: Yeah, parenting. I mean, there's no doubt about it. When in the early part, when I had my my, my first kids, um, I was I was running so hard to create a career. It's a, I think the most difficult thing in the modern day to for any person to get right is the amount that you work to improve the life for your loved ones versus not being there to see them grow up or being around them for those
1: moments. I think when you, you come from a working class background, as both of us did, when there's a chance to make hay while the sun is shining, you harvest hard. So I get why you did it, but it's interesting that it's it's something that you, you, you regret. Would regret be a too strong a word?
0: No, I, yeah, I think it would, because the thing is at the time I was doing the best I possibly could for mm-hmm. everyone in the way that Fair I could, retrospectively, giving myself a tough time for it. There's no point in that at the time. And the other thing is, yes, now I can actually look at it and go, actually, what are the most important things? But a lot of that's to do with the fact that I've actually done well enough that I can afford to do that. At the time, I was too busy trying to pay the mortgage and make sure the kids were fed and added new, new clothes and so on and so forth. So I was running on. I mean, there were there were times with Topical TV who you knew, you the guys down yeah. in Southampton. Yeah. And they would pay me for two jobs in advance I hadn't done yet so that I could pay the mortgage on my kid's house. You know, so you were doing everything at that stage. Yes, I was running hard, but I kind of had to. I'm lucky that as I've gone on in life, I'm now financially in a slightly better position where I can afford to go. Yes, I know that's a good payday that day, but that day I'm actually going hunting for dragons and my little boy in the woods. And actually that's more important to me than that extra money. But if you come from the background we come from and you've got family who are working so hard to earn a big chunk, of a little tiny amount of money, when somebody offers you a big chunk of money for an afternoon on a Saturday, it's kind of, you feel guilty saying no, even if it's for the right reasons. Because you think, it'd take my family member weeks to earn that, weeks to earn that, and they're offering it to me, so I should go and grab it and give them the money, but you know. You've got to balance it up. It's a really it's a really tough thing to get right.
1: But if, if if you had your time again, would you have played it differently with your older kids now that you're having such um, a more magical and free time with Eddie?
0: In retrospect, yes. But at the time, I'm not going to give myself a hard time for it at the time because I didn't know that at the time. And I was trying to do the best I possibly could at the time. And I think it's really interesting how we kind of got into a culture with our news as well where we retrospectively go... And we do it in news where there's events that happen, where there's been uh, riots or there's been something or other where they go, where they look at the police and they go, well, did you do the right thing on, at the moment? Did the emergency services do the right thing in that split yeah. second at the right time? And actually, after two years, we've worked out, in our, two years in our warm, comfortable offices, we've worked out that you could have made that split second decision slightly better. And so as a result, you're responsible for the problem. Well, actually, with the information that that person had at the time in the situation they were in, where they put themselves in the front line to make those decisions, you, you don't get two years to make those decisions. So I'm loath to criticize any of them in retrospect, but it's become this thing where you go,
1: mm. you know, it's a really, really salient point, Nick, because you know, I have this conversation a lot with my brother. He's a firefighter, as is his daughter. They're paid to make snap decisions. But if he did, it wouldn't be with the intention of making a wrong call, it would be working with what he had, the facts as they were available. And, and you know, you can leverage that a government going through 2020, any government, by the way, not just ours. In 2020, would you want to be leading government? Not, not on my, uh, no thanks. I mean, how do you even make the right decisions in a year like this?
0: Look, the, the, the fact of the matter is we're in a pandemic. People, people talk about it as if there is a correct thing to do, a right way to go, you know? And people go, well, you know, they're ign- ignoring advice. On, on which planet would any government ignore advice from the best possible virologists, medical people, economists, um, uh, uh, secret services on the geopolitical things that are going on? I mean, that's the, that's the joke about Brexit, about asking us to decide one way or the other. And don't, get, don't look. Before anybody jumps on me, I'm not saying which way either way. What I'm saying is that we vote in once every four years of government. To make the decisions that we believe are the right decisions. If you don't like what they do, then four years later you get a chance to change them again. Now we're all trying to make decisions about whether everyone's doing anything wrong or right, all at the same time, and suggesting that they might be ignoring good advice. They might also be acting on things that we don't know. They might be being told stuff by their the secret services about the geopolitical machinations of various other other countries that might have an impact on what we do or where we do it. You know, there are things that, work, and, and yet somehow. When it came to Brexit, they went, and by the way, you lot decide whether we should be in or out. Well, hang on a second. I haven't been briefed by the Secret Services. I haven't been briefed by the economists. I haven't been briefed by, you know.
1: Yeah, that was always my issue with with that referendum was I didn't feel um, sufficiently informed. Yeah. My final question to you: When did it last hurt, and why?
0: Oh, wow, um oh there's a lot of things that that, that hurt. You know, uh, inequality, um bigotry, these, these things, and, I, and they are genuine hurts. I don't want my, my 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 children existing in a world which is unfair, unequal, um, where opportunities aren't there. I, you know, I. I said it at the end That's of That's the world
1: you grew up in, Nick, and I grew up in.
0: Yeah, but I'd like to think that I've had some effect on that in my lifetime. Um, you know, you, I've tried to, you know, we, I think we've got, it's getting better for veterans. It's not brilliant, but it's better than it was. Um, I think it's getting better in terms of how we deal with racism. It's, it's certainly better than it was when, when I, when I, you know, in the 1970s. It's, I mean, not, not that I think that we've actually managed to get all the way that we need to get by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think one of the, Biggest dangers to 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 every everybody's well being and people getting on with each other is um, uh, is how we, what we do with social media. I'm, I'm particularly uh, I, it, it, it hurts how vicious and unpleasant people are and how easily people can be hurt um, by uh, sort of faceless people on social media without there being any.
1: Um, do you get any, hurt by that?
0: No, but I've learned to grow, grow a skin like a rhinoceros. You have to be what I do for a living. Although, interestingly, although funny you should say that, because you know that I'd like to play guitar all, all my life, and it was something that I only really did with friends and with my brother. It was a great thing that my brother and I always did. So family parties always ended with, like, the guitars coming out. Everybody Your
1: brother, played. as I remember, is a phenomenal musician, isn't he?
0: Yeah, phenomenal. Really phenomenal and writes musicals, and he's just, he's like a human jukebox. He knows about 3,000 yeah. songs in his head. It's fantastic. I remember
1: so, that. Isn't that funny? Yeah.
0: yeah. So, um, so it was a lovely thing that was really sort of close to my heart with that, and then weirdly because I'd, somebody had seen me playing guitar out in public they, the, the record company asked if I wanted to do an album and I'm, I said to my brother I just don't think it's really something I should do He said, don't be daft if a record company is going to give you the opportunity it's another thing to tick off the list and do it so I did and then I was really taken aback by how vehement the uh, un, sort of unpleasant abuse was and I couldn't for the life of me work out why it got so nasty it took me a long time before I kindly worked out in my head what it was I mean not just the fact that I wasn't that good. That was neither here or there. But, the, but what's really interesting is that music, and you'll know this a lot because of your background with Smash Hits and the other things and the people that you were with, music is really connected to people's mental health. And if you're, if you're sitting with a bunch of musicians, uh, you know, a heavy rock player, a, a R&B player, a country and western player, and you pick guitars up, everybody will play everything because musicians love music and they'll just play and They don't really care about genres. I mean, they like with the genre that they're there in themselves, but they'll join in with almost anything because they love music. Fans, on the other hand, won't know. Fans are, this type of music is brilliant and that type of music is shit. <laughs> I mean, I've had this where um, somebody actually, I picked up on a tweet when somebody said, example, your music is shit. And I actually wrote back to him on social media and said, well, you can't say that. And he went, well, I can say what I like. I was like, well, not really, because because his music obviously isn't shit because he's sold millions of albums. And he went, well, I'm allowed to say it's shit. I was like, well, I'll tell you what, mate, try writing some songs, try and get yourself an album deal, try and get yourself three or four or five albums out there Try selling millions of records, then you can decide how crap his music is. So, so I was really taken aback. But I, the conclusion was that it's so linked to people's mental health and well-being and emotions that they become vehement about it in, in in a really personal way. And I was kind of able to. But that actually, genuinely, all the television stuff and abuse I've ever got over television. When I wrote a movie and people were said, you know, terrible about the movie, Water of a Duck's Back, it did fine, did great on Netflix, it did all the stuff cookbook don't really care and the music oddly enough that did hurt a little bit and I didn't pick up a guitar for a year did
1: it yeah and
0: I didn't pick up a guitar for a year afterwards.
1: I'm sorry they stripped your joy of that Nick because I know how much you loved it I lived so- next I lived next door for 13 weeks remember <laughs> I know all the words to it, more than words because of you <laughs> look, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that's
0: coming back now my brother sort of brought me back around to, and look yeah. in the overall of things I'm not you know I'm not somebody who sits and feels sorry for myself We kind of for me it's a case of looking at it and going now why did that hurt when so many other things didn't and then of course you know like the things that then the, then the other big hurts are where you end up hurting anybody else that's you know you don't want to do that you want to be a you want to be a good father you want to be a good partner you want to be a good friend and just through the course of life at various stages you end up hurting people that you did that you'd rather not weirdly you tend to hurt people you love more than you hurt complete strangers don't you and just yeah. by the nature of the fact that you're close together so yeah, you, you know, there, are those. that I'd like to not have done some of those things over my lifetime, but but you know, you've got to you've got to forgive yourself a little bit and forgive each other because nobody's perfect.
1: Nobody's perfect. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Do you know this is my one hundredth episode, and you are my one hundredth guest?
0: Is that right? Yes. You must be, you must be really old by now, then. <laughs> I
1: am, but not as old as you, my friend. Not well.
0: <laughs> Not by a long way, and you're still looking lovely, my darling. And I can't believe we haven't actually got together and um, had a cocktail.
1: We need to sit down and break some bread and thro- throw some wine around and probably yeah. catch
0: up. And and you should be, or you should continue to be, enormously proud of the coverage that you did. Which I thought, um, well, all going all, all the way back and circling back to where we started this thing, back at that sort of the coverage of the um the, the death of Princess Diana. That I thought you did it with uh, a great deal of dignity and a great deal real of um, empathy. Um, you, which is, yeah, we've only done about I've never
1: months. watched that show back. Do you know that? I could never bring myself to watch that show. I have no idea how I did on the day.
0: No, nor me. Nor me.
1: A common trait that we share. We love what we do. Um,
0: I think it's because we're both fascinated by people. The thing I'm, is, so
1: I remain interested in everybody. Yeah, I do. Yeah. What I drives mean, them, what
0: them? What gives them the strength to carry on? What What motivates them? What 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 influences they've had in their lives? How they came to be who they were and where they are. Mm. Weird, weirdly you always think that interesting people are other people and everybody thinks that and the thing is everybody has something amazing to say my first news editor in australia he was about. He, 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 there was no news this day and he literally said to me you're gonna have to go down the bowls club they've got like a, a, a regional bowls game going i'm gonna have to stick that in for the last three minutes of the news so i was like bowls he said we haven't got anything else so i was like well i can't what we, how can i make a news item about bowls he said well just go and do something i said well, what am i going to say he said nick Everybody you talk to will have an amazing story to tell. You just have to find out what it is. And very good advice. My whole life in television has been on that basis. You'll find that the little old man who's walking down the road back from the shops that you see every day, who goes up to Tesco's and gets his pint of milk and his blah blah blah, when you talk to him, he might have actually been parachuted into a you know, on a bridge in a car and and been a prisoner of war or done this or that or the other or. He might have been a music hall clown or he might have when he was younger worked at a circus or he might have um, once met um, Laurel and Hardy when they were touring England and sat at a point with them in a pub somewhere. Everybody's got a story to tell and you just like if you've got the time and the patience and you're interested in other people at least as much as you're interested in yourself um, and you learn to shut up and listen. People will tell you the most amazing things.
1: Right, I'm coming to see you in the Cotswolds. That's yeah. it. There we are. It's I'll said, it's done.
0: Run. I promise.
1: Yeah, okay. So, Thank you. Look after yourself. Go find some bluebells and foxgloves and live the country dream. And nice to see your face after all this time.
0: Nice to see you. Take care, darling.
1: Lots of love. Thank you so much for listening to White Wine Question Time, our 100th episode. I mean this when I say it. We wouldn't be here if you didn't lend us your ears every week, share your reviews, tell your friends. So for that, a heartfelt, massive thank you from me. You enable me to do the greatest job in the world. And as always, this show is produced by me, alongside Callum Goddard-Mucklow and Richard Hatherall, Michael Bartlomovich, and all the team at Yahoo UK. So thank you so much to them for the un flailing hard work music as always is provided by my dear friend andy bell whose back catalogue with oasis ride and his solo material is available on spotify and itunes oh i never thought i'd get to 100 episodes thank you so much i'll see you next week we're not going anywhere and remember to do as we always do and please drink responsibly